This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning and welcome radio therapists everywhere. I'm Dr Doolittle and have we got a colossal show for you this morning. Joining us in the studio is our special guest, Professor Jeff Lindemann. Jeff is a clinician scientist studying breast cancer and how to prevent it. His group recently made a discovery that could lead to the prevention of breast cancer in certain groups of high-risk women. And he's in to tell us all about that and probably a little bit more. In terms of regular panellists, we've got, you know, we've got two of our legends. Dr Capri <laughs> is our GP with a special interest in medical student teaching and women's health. Capri has been giving some thought to the relationship between GPs and the alternative health industry. Just how should GPs in general engage with the alternative industry? Should they refer to alternative practitioners or should they keep a clear and solid line between what they do and what others do? Also with us is Dr Perry Partnam. Now, I was about to tell you that Perry Parton was going to tell us about the wash-up from the elections and what the impact was on mental health in Australia, but she's changed her mind. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. Well, I think just I think everybody else is as, as over the election as I am. And well, I, yeah, I agree. Something else. Yeah, when you told me totally. you changed your mind, you know, because I'm always so positive. You know, I try to be positive. When yeah, you I say, know, I want to do wash-up from the election, I go, oh, that just sounds so fantastic. <laughs> I think the listening audience is just dying to know more about the election. And so when you came in this morning and said, Heads up! I've changed my mind. In my in my tiny little brain, I went, "Oh, I'm happy. I'm happy. <laughs> I'm happy too." Oh, so, so it's all good. I can tell you what I'm actually going to talk about. No, let's keep it as a surprise. Although, okay. um, although I did sneak a look over your shoulder whilst you were standing there, and I know it was something to do with dementia decreasing, and then some really cool, interesting stuff recently, including about pig humans. Yes. So let's talk about pig humans. So stay tuned. Um, and last, of course, um, but not leastly, is Kent on the panel. He's running things behind the scenes and grabbing a mic when you least expect it. Kent, I reckon you should just grab mics whenever you want to talk. You can't. He can't talk at the moment because he's got no mic. Because we only have four mics in our studio unless anyone wants to donate during Radiothon, which is upcoming. More mics. Um, anyway, so uh, you know, if you want to have your say, jump onto our Facebook page, Radiotherapy on Triple R, and state your case. Otherwise, sit back. Back, relax, and enjoy the show. Let's say hello to Professor Jeff first. G'day, Jeff. How are you? Hi, Dr. Doolittle. We are excited to have you in here. And this is a big day for you too, isn't it, in some ways? I'm uh, talking about the opening you're going to later. Uh, that's right. After this, I'll be uh, wandering down, perhaps in a 30-car motorcade, to uh, the new Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre. Uh, Joe Biden's in town today to, to open that. So oh, that's what that's, all the police presence yeah. is in the middle of the city. You, you thought the police presence was for me to get across from no, um, Bayside suburbs to... sort of, you know... Well, Political I noticed the helicopter export, uh, helicopter sort of. So heads up for the whole world out there. The VCCC, Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre, is that the new name for Peter Mac? I get confused. So Peter Mac Cancer Centre has so moved to Parkville, the, brand new building worth a billion dollars. It's as shiny as you can imagine, and they call it the VCCC. What's the what's that's the go right. there? It's, it's a beautiful building, both on the outside and inside. But it actually houses the Peter Mac and some researchers from the University of Melbourne and Royal Melbourne Hospital. Right, but. It's not just the building which is special and the fact that the Peter Mac has moved, but what, what it's really bringing together is a whole group of um, cr- critical mass of uh, cancer researchers mm. and clinicians. This so is like, the, the, you know, one of the biggest things that's happening, sort of cancer research and care in Victoria for a long, oh, long time. Oh, I think so. It's obviously captured the attention of Joe Biden. Um, Why Joe Biden? Why the vice president? What's, what's so, the link? So uh, with the State of the Union address earlier this year, Barack Obama um, announced the Cancer Moonshot project, I, I guess, is a blast back to the Kennedy days of uh, 
going to the moon and making it feasible. And so he has uh, asked Joe Biden to help lead this cancer moonshot project. Ah. And it's a $1 billion US project to, to turbocharge cancer research in the US. Wow. It's very exciting because I think there's a big sense that we're on the cusp of some uh, things that will really translate into a difference for medicine. Well, you and know so what? this is to turbocharge that. Um, you know what? Um, we will hold that thought because we're going to do our catch-up, which is our usual first segment where we talk about this this and that, and that, it's Capri's um, job this morning. Um, but then we're going to come back and interview and we're going to follow that bit up. What you know? What is that all about? Where are we heading? Three, triple, ah. Dr. Capri is going to tell us some thoughts about general practitioners and alternative health practitioners, the relationships and links. Over to you, Capri. Thanks, Doodle. Well, I don't know that I'm just going to talk about GPs, uh, but in general, how the medic when should the medical profession um, stand up and fly the uh, flag for the science-based medicine when we're confronted with uh, alternative health? practices and patients' preferences for those particular type of therapies. And uh, the chair of the College of GPs earlier this year made that stand and and um, it came in response to a video that a lot of people have probably seen where the chiropractor manipulated a four-day-old baby for colic. Um, and after that, um, the chair of the college um, suggested that or, or suggested that GPs should avoid or not no longer refer children to chiropractors and reassess whether they refer any patients to chiropractors. Mm-hmm. So I'm not really going to um, emphasise chiropractors in particular. It's just uh, alternative um, health practices in general. But just, I guess, for the panel, you know, do you think that was a heavy-handed, inappropriate approach? Or if he hadn't if the college hadn't come out and said anything would that have been worse see i think this is a really important conversation for us to have and i think it's it's broader even than just medicine um in in general i think in 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 general terms there's a lot of information out there with all the information that's available on the internet and um, I think that we need to stand up for what we think scientific rationality really is. Uh, It reminded me of this because there's um, a discussion happening in The Guardian at the moment about uh, Catalyst Program which um, Mm. has recently been the news for the wrong reasons I would say. Uh, the presenter of the Catalyst Program was suspended recently as a consequence of sort of a series of moderately anti-science or anti-conventional science uh, programs which were aired in succession. The most recent of which which was aired in, I think, February early this year, which was about Wi-Fi and its effect on children's brains and on the potential to cause cancer. So I think um, the the thing that annoyed me about the article in The Guardian really was that the the person who was writing it was saying, you know, we need to make sure that all ideas are considered on their merits and the more ideas, the better. But I actually think that misunderstands the fundamental philosophy behind science, which is that you have a hypothesis in order to disprove it, and what you use to disprove it is medical facts or scientific facts. Um, Well, not so much medical and scientific facts, but scientific process. 
a series of you know recognized approaches to science that study um, the information that you're trying to disprove because you're always coming from that point as you say the null hypothesis trying to prove everything wrong mm. um, and it's a series of processes because there's no facts as such I get do you know what the, the thing that sort of get, gets me of course is a lot of what we practice in medicine has an evidence base that is essentially alternative medicine a lot of what we do doesn't have a strong evidence base you know and, and I sometimes quite sarcastically say, you know, about 50% of surgery, um, 30, a third of psychiatry and about a quarter of general medicine. Um, and I say that sarcastically, I know. I can, I can see your hand going up. But yeah, 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 I want to talk. I want to talk. Exactly. Go. Okay, go, go, go. I've thrown my controversial <laughs> statement out there. By the way, those facts, if anyone's wondering, those numbers are totally made up in a doolittle head. They're Sorry. not... They're not facts. It's just my my sarcastic approach. My problem with all of that relativism is that it ignores that some things are more relative than others. So, you know, creationism and evolution are both theories, but that doesn't mean that creationism has as much evidence to back it up as evolution does. True. The idea that climate science is an idea, that's that's something that um, upsets me as someone who sort of believes that science is an important thing to teach people, that there isn't just um, a plethora of different ideas that some ideas are better than others. And I think the problem with talking about evidence-based versus science-based is where you run into problems. I think... um, That sounds like semantics to me. Tell me what you mean. Well, because, you know, there is a body of science and you can um, explain... I'll give you an example. If I'm faced with someone who... uh, I'll use asthma as a really good example. So someone will come to me and uh, and suggest that they don't want the traditional asthma medication that I um, suggest because their chiropractor says that they can manage their asthma perfectly well by doing the various adjustments or whichever health practitioner they've decided is offering them a better option than what I give them, which is, you know, chemicals, etc. So then I'll have to, and it takes obviously a long time, and that's where I think the alternative health practitioners probably do it better than we do because they spend a lot of time talking about what they offer and, and give and give the patients the other part of what they need as, as part of their healing process is being listened to and being, you know, taken into consideration. But you sit there and you explain what asthma is, the science behind what happens in the bronchioles, that it's an inflammatory process, and the reason I'm suggesting an anti-inflammatory is because that will actually treat the problem that is happening within their bronchioles. Whereas, whereas if you go to an alternative health practitioner, I don't think they can give them the same scientific information. It doesn't mean they have to believe me. But, but when I'm treating them, I think it's important that I start with that premise that it, there is a scientific reason for which I am suggesting that this particular therapy is in their best interest. And I, and I think it's important, a couple of caveats, it's important that we point out we're not talking about good or bad here. We're talking no. about different approaches, different things. And I say, and in some ways I think that example skews it a little bit because um, asthma is not something that you'd want a chiropractor treating. And even when that um, occurred, a lot of chiropractors went out in the media saying, hey, sure we've got some people in our industry that don't do everything the way we would all agree and we don't support them doing that either. We don't support that either. We think that's an out there practice. We don't support it. And I think even the chiropractor's organisation came out. But if you get a chiropractor on stuff that's their bread and butter, maybe, you know, musculoskeletal problems, they might quite rightly argue that if you go to a doctor, you're going to get all this nonsense treatment about musculoskeletal problems and medications that don't do well and all sorts of arthroscopies that don't do well, whereas we do these approaches. Do you know what I mean? So I don't know that the example's fair and um, and but I think we have to start. We have to f- keep flying the flag for science. I don't. I don't think that we should be blurring the lines and suggest and not um, 
uh, educating our patients and giving them the information with which they can then make some kind of um, sort of judgment on. I don't think it's right for us to say, okay, you know, for example, if someone comes to me in that situation, I say, okay, well, that's fair enough. You know, you're, it's your right to choose. I think I need to present, you know, the science and the the, the information that that we we believe yep. in, and then that you know they've got a right to choose. So, so I kind of agree with uh, Capri here. I, I think uh, you see it a lot in oncology, unfortunately, uh, because obviously the outcome for patients can sometimes not be so good, and people are always mm. looking for other answers. Um, and I, I, in my own practice, I see people going out and paying a lot of money for high-dose vitamin C therapy, hyperbaric oxygen is very fashionable at the moment. Um, sending your blood off for circulating cancer cells is, is also incredibly fashionable. And uh, none of those things actually are proven. Some, sometimes they can do harm. And I think that's where I worry. So what do you tell your patients? Because Capri's argument is you should be telling your patients unequivocally, um, you shouldn't be, you know, the argument is, this, I, don't, I don't want to paraphrase you too much, but the argument, you've basically got two options. You either go down the clear evidence base where you say, look, there is no evidence for those. They are potentially harmful. You, of course, have the right to choose whatever you want to choose, but I just want to let you know I don't support it. Versus the approach of, look, whatever you do that you feel lines up with your philosophies and you feel good about you should go for i don't want you that let that to impact on our treatment so as well so you should also have your x y and z chemotherapy radiotherapy whatever which sort of line do so, you fall on so my, my approach is a hybrid approach i guess because mm. i can understand the holistic nature of what's offered by alternative medicine albeit not evidence-based um, but having said that, I, I really want to know what people are doing. For example, if they're taking high-dose vitamin C, that makes the urine much more acid. It can make it very hard to clear chemotherapy. Um, so it, it Meaning that actually, they'll, they'll um, accumulate doses of um, chemotherapy That's in their body right. and they'll get more toxicity. You could actually have an adverse effect. outcome. And yep. there's some early evidence um, to suggest that hyperbaric uh, oxygen may actually alter um, some of the biologic behaviour in an adverse fashion. But, of course, that's not out there in the public. Um, and so people who spruik these things can get away with it. That is what I mean, there is that, always that problem that people think alternative treatments are side-effect-free. There is no such yeah. thing as a treatment that's side-effect-free. No. I mean, I actually... Um, follow the hybrid um, method as well. I don't actually tell patients this is what I think you should do, um, and I don't dis- disallow them to to um, incorporate other uh, alternative um, therapies into you know what they feel is is best for them. But I I make sure that I give them the scientific information with which to balance the other information they're getting. Um, so I don't tell them what to do but I do think that it's my job to give them you know um, accurate up-to-date science-based information which is what I'm trying to do. What do you do over there? Yeah um, I was just thinking about what I do I I suppose the thing about being uh, a psychiatrist is that um, there's a sort of a filtering process that goes on before people get to you like if they really think that antidepressants or psychotherapy aren't going to be the thing that's going to help them with their problems then they won't even come to see you in the first place so I don't actually ever really have to have those conversations I suppose one of the conversations I have is when people are taking St John's wort because that does have some sort of Mm. highly variable antidepressant effect and it can interfere with the or make more toxic the side effects of some more conventional antidepressants. See I just think of St John's wort as a mild antidepressant it's the most popular antidepressant in Germany it's available over there Um, psychiatrists prescribe it Um, instead of working in about 50% of people it works in about a third of people and it has some side effects 
effects, but they're quite mild and it does have some drug interactions. So I always just think of some John's wort as a mild antidepressant. You know, because you know what my pro, the reason I'm so, um, I've thought about this a lot, because I've always thought that the evidence base in psychiatry is pretty poor. You know, so our evidence base has really, you know, because when people talk about something's evidence based or not, obviously there's levels of evidence. There's, you know, and different bodies divided up different ways, but some things are incredibly well established, researched in multiple labs, gone on for years, meta-analyses that um, develop it. Other things have done double-blind, placebo-controlled trials, sort of the next level down, but they haven't necessarily been independently verified in other labs in other countries by other groups. Then there's, um, of course, going down to um, high-quality case control studies, then going down to anecdotal reports and belief systems. So there's all sorts of stuff. And psychiatry's always swum a little bit round the bottom of that well. Um, in particular, our antidepressants and our psychotherapies, our evidence base isn't strong, largely because it's hard to apply science to um, psychiatry, to human nature, to human behaviour. The act of measuring changes that which is to be measured. That destroys nearly all of our psychiatric research, the Heisenberg principle. And so as a consequence, we struggle. So I don't... So as a, so over the years, I've got so used to explaining to patients the evidence base around specific treatments without judging the treatment. So if they ask about St John's Wort, I'll tell them. If they ask about psychotherapy, I'll tell them. If they ask about ECT, I'll tell them. And I'll tell them where I think the evidence fits in and I'll tell them how I think they should use that in weighing up their decision. And of course, everyone comes with a philosophical background of what, what they believe. And, I, and so, anyway, but it is, it is tricky. Any uh, final comments, areas, Some areas, uh, like, like cancer medicine, are, are much more evidence-based, I would mm, argue. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. You can measure, uh, when you can measure an outcome, um, you can have evidence. And I, I think, I, I agree, it must be much harder in psychiatry. Yeah. Mm. But you can do a lot of harm. For example, there was, it was fashionable at one stage to give high-dose chemotherapy to breast cancer patients because an initial study showed promise and uh, many thousands of women underwent bone marrow transplants and, mm. and had adverse effects until the randomised trials came along and um, showed that that was not beneficial. Yeah. Mm. It's a fantastic debate. Feel free to jump onto our Facebook page, Radio Therapy and Triple R, and tell us we're all a bunch of fools and we've got it all wrong and tell us what the correct answer is. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. And I'm going to give you a formal intro now because I gave you a quick intro um, in our intro. Um, so here's a formal intro. Jeff, Professor Jeff Linderman. Jeff is a clinician scientist focusing on breast stem cell biology and translational breast cancer research. His lab is working to understand how normal and cancerous cells develop in the breast. They use this information to advance new treatments for breast cancer. And contributions to cancer research include they've identified breast stem cells which give rise to normal breast tissue, defining how normal breast tissue growth is regulated and how errors lead to breast cancer, identifying the breast cells that are predisposed to becoming cancerous in women with the BRCA1 gene, and we're going to tell you what that is in a second, and discovering potential strategies to treat and prevent breast cancer. And Jeff also works at the VCCC, and he's primarily um, the uh, co-boss, the joint divisional head of the stem cell and cancer stream at the WEHI, the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute, which, let's face it, it's one of our favourite institutes. Mm. I was going to say in Melbourne, and then I realised really Australia. So, um, you know, formal official uh, interview welcome aboard, um, Jeff. Thank you very much. You could say the world. I mean, WEHI's got an international reputation as well. We love it. I, I once went to WEHI um, and had a tour of the place, and it's just so impressive. If you get the opportunity, because they do have open days and stuff like that crowd, um, keep it in mind and uh, head along and check it out. It is fantastic. Hey, why don't you um, get the ball rolling? Because we're going um, we're gonna to talk a little bit about the BRCA gene and... Uh, its influence on breast cancer and how you can prevent it. That's what you're here for. So why don't you get the ball rolling by tell us 
what the BRCA gene is. So, so BRCA1 uh, was probably best made famous by Angelina Jolie, mm. so it's the Angelina Jolie gene, if you like. Um, it's a gene which can, is probably present in about 1 in 400 women, um, and can for, for those people who carry a faulty gene, copy of the gene, they, they are predisposed to breast and ovarian cancer. And the thing about their risk is that it's relatively high, so uh, a woman with a faulty BRCA1 gene has something like a 65% chance of developing breast cancer cancer in her lifetime and so up to a 40% chance of developing ovarian cancer. So it's wow. serious business. Yeah. I mean, carrying, carrying a, the faulty gene doesn't mean that you're going to get cancer, but it ups the stakes, as you could imagine. And so traditionally, if you've got a BRCA gene, you've got to face the decision about whether to have a um, prophylactic, a preventative mastectomy, yeah? Is that, well, is well that that's one of the challenges that, that uh, women face. Um, the, the usual strategy, uh, because the cancers start to arise in adult years, would be to do annual screening from about the age of 30 um, fairly mm. intensive with mm. mammograms and MRI scans and clinical checks um, but yes that that's really good for identifying cancers early but it's not going to prevent them um, and early detection of course helps uh, treatment so prevention has been a real holy grail currently one of the options is you know obviously quite quite extreme and that is to have bilateral prophylactic mastectomies so removals of the breasts um, to um, prevent breast cancer it's very effective but it's obviously slightly intrusive surgery yeah it's dramatic it's a, it's, it must be a horrible yeah. um decision to have to face Indeed. Um, Jeff. What, what is the focus of your group's research regarding the BRCA gene? So we've been very interested, really. It, it started through our, our interest in, in understanding normal um, breast development. So we're really interested in understanding the cellular and mole molecular mechanisms that give rise to normal breast tissue and then understanding how things go awry mm. when cancer happens. And a few years ago, we actually um, discovered the culprit cell, which is responsible for giving rise to... Uh, tumours in BRCA1 mutation carriers. Um, this is a daughter cell of a stem cell called a progenitor cell and it um, has aberrant growth behaviour in the normal breast and our recent work has really been able to pinpoint that cell a little bit more closely and, and we were really excited to discover that um, the, the, these culprit cells that um, are destined to become cancerous uh, express a mark called rank on their surface. So that was really exciting because there are actually inhibitors of this pathway already in the clinic. And so we were very interested to see if we could exploit this um, particular... Can I just hold it? What yep. do you mean by already in the clinic? So I think I know what you mean, but just yeah. explain. You mean already available, yeah? Already available. So, so there, there, are there is a drug available that switches off rank signalling, and it's actually used to treat women with osteoporosis. Mm. There's a drug called denosumab, which is a rank, a rank ligand inhibitor. So this is the molecule that docks onto rank and switches on the, the whole right. activity. So in theory, if you give women with the BRCA1 gene... Um, I'm going to pronounce it, denosumab. Right. Did I get that right? Denosumab. I'm well. so bad at pronouncing names. That's why I had Don't to become a shrink. To pronounce um, a psychiatric. Those are easy. Then it will hopefully, although I'm, I'm sure you're going to say you need to do clinical studies, it will hopefully drastically reduce the number that um, it'll reduce that 65% of people with BRCA1 gene who go on to get breast cancer. You're hoping to drop that right down, yeah? That's right. That's right. So so I guess our discovery is, is largely preclinical, but also based on... Um, 
tissue from BRCA1 carriers that's been donated from women around the country um, through a group called K-Confab. So, so what we have found is that you can switch off rank signalling in these cells and shut down their proliferation by switching off um, rank ligand. And so we, we actually had donated tissue from uh, BRCA1 carriers and used denosumab in the test tube to show that we could switch off the mm. proliferation in these cells. We've actually started a small clinical study where we're testing this biology in, in real patients. And in fact, the first three patients that we've looked at that were part of the paper we published recently, we were able to show that after three months of therapy, you can switch off proliferation. When you at, at that moment when that happens, do you all just go crazy? What happens when you realise, <laughs> oh my a, God, that actually is working? Do yeah. you all just start cheering and you know? Doctor Capri is waving her arms in the <laughs> air as she speaks. By the way, I just, so, I just uh, can't imagine that moment. I'm, I'm what not happens? known for my dancing, but we do do get very <laughs> do excited about our eureka moments. So Emma Nolan is our PhD student who uh, has done a fantastic job here, and uh, she, yeah, she definitely had her eureka moment. Great. Can I just ask you know related to that and related to our previous conversation about science in medicine and scientific process. So, you know, I'm just trying to think through the scientific steps. So, obviously, by the time you were researching this area, we knew all about the BRCA gene, which stands for the breast cancer gene, the BRCA gene. Everyone knew about that. You knew about that it was one in 400. You knew that it did something to growth. What gave you the clue to look at those particular cells? So for us, it's, it's been 10, 10 years of work looking at mm. uh, normal biology, so it's very far removed from the clinic. Yep. And this is why I'm such a great advocate of um, basic research and, and translational research. Translational for people out there means re research that um, translates into treatment, essentially. Is that yes, that's yeah. right, or, or, or even taking samples from the, the clinic into the lab and, yep. and vice versa. But, but it's the basic biology which ultimately gives you those big hits. Right, and, and so, so that really were you looking at like a number of cells? Or, or we were, they, how we did, really, what was the process? So we we're really trying to identify stem cells in the yep. breast because stem cells are like the seeds that give rise to all of the uh, cells that lie in the ducts in the breast and we know mm -hmm. that the ductal tissue is the, the, the cells that are responsible for breast cancer. So we really want to understand normal development and, for example, what its role is in lactation, um, yep. in the regression following lactation. And the discovery of the stem cell in both mice and humans and then the daughter cells, the progenitor cells, really led us to BRCA1 because we found that these daughter cells looked very much like the tumours that uh, BRCA1 mutation carriers develop. Mm. So women with a faulty... Which, when you say looked like... Just expand on that a little. I'm, I, I, so feel free to tell me too much detail. Do a little. Very go technical, back. Dr. I know. Well, I'm just because I've know. got this whole science thing in my head at the moment. So I'm trying to picture for the, um, myself and everyone else out there what science actually looks like in the process. Because we always get these results. So I'm trying to think. You know, how did you know to look at these cells? When you looked at these cells, how did you know that it was the rank protein? And then how did you figure out that? Oh, we can. You know, I'm trying to get. I'm trying so, to. So we use genomics. Um, so we don't look down the microscope and see this sort of whopping great yep. tumour or, or, or breast. What we what we did was to look at the genetic profile of these cells. Um, so right. each cell has about 25,000 genes um, in it and some are on and some are off. So you can nowadays profile to see what the particular uh, suite of genes that are on and off are. And, and they looked very similar to the card-carrying tumours that these women mm. uh uh, develop as well. So they're, they're called, I mean, the, the, the jargon is basal-like breast cancers or triple negative breast cancers. They often lack hormone receptors um, uh, and, and have a very angry-looking uh, molecular signature. And, and our progenitor cells have the same signature and express the rank gene. 
So can I just move from the, the basic science just then to the implications for people listening to the program? Is it then true to say that if, say, Angelina Jolie had lived 10 years later, she wouldn't have had to have a double mastectomy. She would have been better off maybe taking a medication for osteoporosis, like the one that's in clinical trials at the moment. Denosumab. I'm just showing off that I know the name. Yes, thank you. (laughs) So, look, that's a difficult question. I I think the answer is she was, in a sense, best off doing what she was doing because it takes time for the... You know, we were talking about evidence-based medicine. It takes time for the evidence to accrue and and at any moment in time in in humanity we have to do what what is uh, best standard of practice. Um, So so we're doing this small pilot study, as I mentioned, called the BRCA-D at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Um, That we're hoping over the next year or two to become part of an international effort to look at a a prevention study in BRCA-1 and 2 mutation carriers, which is going to require at least 2,000 women to be in a proper randomised study. And the outcomes of that sort of study will take about 10 years. So the way I explained it to people is that this has potentially got relevance to Angelina Jolie's children. Yeah, well, I think that's a good way to explain it. Mm. Um, and, and so in future then, w- what are you hoping for after this study is completed? Do you think that there are other methods or ways that we can try and address the issue of breast cancer in these vulnerable women? Well, uh, look, I think in, in a sense th- this discovery has opened the box a little bit for prevention. So currently drugs like tamoxifen um, offer promise as a prevention agent but they tend to only, tamoxifen is a drug that's used to treat breast cancer and an anti-hormone drug um, it, it it seems to be helpful to uh, reduce the risk of a women developing a hormone receptor positive breast cancer BRCA carriers uh, develop hormone negative cancers and so this might be a way to um, prevent those more aggressive ones but really you know time will tell and it often these sorts of findings will raise a whole suite of new questions as you've implied that will then need to be addressed. I want to ask just one final question it's a little bit off track this one but you know you're an oncologist working um, in the clinical area essentially of breast cancer and I want you to imagine all of a sudden you were switched to a psychiatrist and you got a job at this new place that you called the VCCC <laughs> um, and as an oncologist with all your experience and feel free to plead the fifth which is an American term given you've got Joe Biden with you today um, feel free to plead the fifth but what do you see as the gaps in the you know if you what would you tell psychiatrists they need to do better or psychiatrists, psychologists and social workers? What do they need to do better in breast cancer? What are the gaps? I know it's a tough question out of the blue, but I just sort of so take I'm advantage of you. I'm desperately starting to work out how I can plead the fifth here. Yeah. Um, what do you, I, look, you know, I, do you reckon I, there's gaps? Do you reckon we're doing it badly? Because I, I, I hear I sometimes we are. interesting and probably really the most, it's the most difficult part of medicine in a way. And, and I mentioned it before, we've got markers. Uh, so it's so people who look after heart disease can measure cholesterol and blood pressure Um, in oncology it's very hard to have predictive markers before a person gets cancer once they've got cancer there are things you can measure psychiatry is difficult i suspect because you don't have very tangible measures you have to presumably develop tools Um, and i think I, I guess if I was starting in psychiatry now, I'd be trying to understand the molecular biology and the the, the chemical signalling in the brain um, that could provide a clue. Um, a lot of people so are doing that. I guess I'm more seeing, you know, when you see, look after patients, you know, what do you see, you know, do they... 
I'm, oh, I guess well, I'm look, trying to get your clinical a, impression of what the gaps are so, in the psychosocial side of things. So, so I think, look, there is a lot of, obviously patients experience a lot of distress um, going through um, the, the cancer journey and for breast cancer, fortunately, a lot of women nowadays actually end up being survivors. I mean, 90% of women diagnosed with breast cancer will um, be alive and well five years later. Is it that good now? It's, wow. it's gone just in the last 20 years. It's gone from uh, 75% to almost 90, 89.6%. So it's improving. But that doesn't mean they don't experience psychological distress that they then carry with them for a long time. So I think... Uh, clinicians aren't always particularly good at picking that up, whereas psychiatrists obviously have a, an intrinsic understanding of that. So I think that would be an area of an opportunity for a psychiatrist wandering into the BCCC building. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Hey, um, we've got more to come. Um, thanks so much, Jeff, for um, giving us that rundown and all that stuff about breast cancer. You're going to stick around with us. Um, we're going to, uh, aren't you, after the break and yep. talk a little bit more. Dr. Perry Partham's got like a little, it's essentially a show bag of topics. Yeah, and I had a quick peek at them during the last song and they're pretty good. So stick around, everyone. Three triple R. Oh, by the way, whilst we were um, during, in the break, someone called in and basically said, what's the state of play with atypical ducted ductal hyperplasia and we figured given we had Jeff in the studio we may as well do our best to answer this one what is the state of play Jeff well uh, look uh, the, the, the first answer is it's probably best to if, if somebody's been diagnosed with this to to ask their surgeon about it because that's that's the right go-to person um, but there are various stages of changes the breast can go through before a, a frank invasive cancer happens and uh, some of the earliest changes can be uh, just extra growth of the ductal cells which can look a bit atypical to a pathologist and that's why it's called right. that. Um, so hyperplasia means extra growth, extra atypical growth. means it looks odd looks and ductal odd means it's in, in the, the ducts. And so, so really it's often just something that one would see on, an, on a biopsy and, and then watch and perhaps do more frequent mammograms down the line right. to monitor. Um, you can, there are changes that occur so there are some changes called DCIS, which is a precancerous. What does that stand for? That's a ductal, ductal carcinoma in situ. Right. So that's actually that's the more, next level. That's is the it? next, in a sense, the next level. Um, for atypical ductal hyperplasia, it probably ends up meaning uh, having uh, closer watch uh, because right. there, if, if it's at, uh, particularly atypical, it may mean that there's a slight increase in breast cancer. So it risk. essentially means pathologists have looked down the microscope, said this doesn't look bad, but it looks suspicious, and they're saying watch this space. Pretty much, yeah. Right. And so we'll talk about prevention a bit before some some people might want to talk to their uh, specialists about is is there a is it worth taking a prevention drug like tamoxifen for that sort of thing? But um, most people would probably just simply watch. But once again, I'm not a breast surgeon who deals with this sort of thing, so ask the right person. <laughs> good one, good one, good one. So on the panel, myself, Dr. Doolittle, Dr. Capri, Professor Jeff Linderman from Walter and Eliza Hall Institute, WeHi. Our second favourite place, our first favourite place is normally a cafe or a restaurant, but we won't go there. Mm. But for the last bit, we've got like a um, show bag and Dr mm. Perry Partham mm. has brought in a bit of a show bag. Of some, it's pretty much a good, the bad and the ugly style story or it's a good, the not so quite good. Tell us where you're starting. Yeah, that's true. And it is because no one wants to talk about the election anymore, least of all me. <laughs> so I'm starting with good news. Um, it's always a good place to start, I think. There was a British uh, study that was published a little while ago, um, which suggests actually that as we get older, we're not getting dementia quite as much as we used to, which is which is nice for all of us who are getting older. 
Um, and what they've really done is they've replicated a study done in the 1990s which um, looked at people as they enter their 70s, men and 80s, women, and the rates of people developing dementia during that period. And then they replicated that study 20 years later, so between 2008 and 2013, and they found that actually there were substantially less people developing dementia in this, this newer cohort. Um, you know, about 40,000 people in the UK are less less people got dementia in that later period than earlier um a reduction of um several percent really so um what was interesting i think is that most of the improvement actually happened with men rather than with women there didn't seem to be much change in the incidence of dementia in older women but that you know you can kind of think about why that might be you know, uh, the theories that were advanced by the researchers were that maybe it's because men are smoking less and so they're not getting quite as much, you know, vascular disease in the brain. The other theory might have been that people are emphasising lifestyle factors in their later age, so a lot more exercise is being done in older people. Um, and people are taking preventative medications like statins to lower their cholesterol. So all those sorts of broadly speaking things that are sensible to do, people have started doing, which is probably good. Because fascinating with dementia, um, you know, there's obviously a whole lot of factors that you can't prevent, you know, your genes, um, you know, all sorts of familial factors, etc., etc. But the biggest preventative factor you can do, I'm trying trying to think I'm trying to think if this is a correct statement because I'm saying it off the top of my head, is exercise. Mm. You know, there's a whole lot of little stuff that people come out. I mean, smoking is obviously important. Anything that decreases the oxygen and wrecks the blood vessels in the brain is obviously going to increase your chances of dementia because a lot of dementia is vascular, not all. A lot of it's to do with other stuff too. Um, but, um, but it's exercise. Exercise is the one big thing. It's pretty and cool, isn't it? There was also something recently to um, discount the idea that doing, um, you know, mental Brain challenges... Brain training? Yeah, that actually doesn't help. I've never been impressed with him. I've yeah, never been well, impressed with him. The latest. There's evidence that it doesn't help. Yeah. Yeah, mm. it's, it doesn't make any difference. It's, and, in fact, getting out and being social is better than doing the, all those brain training things. So being part of a, a you know a group where you actually socialise and talk and sort of, yep. um, that's actually more beneficial for reducing the incidence. Yeah, and movement, involving movement in that as well. So Has if you're involved been... in a dance group or a walking group, that right. seems to be the most Because I try and join dance groups, but they always throw me out. <laughs> <laughs> they do, I kid you not. Yeah, they well, say you're uncoordinated, you're at risk of injuring people, please go and sit on the couch at home and imagine you're dancing, stop <laughs> trying to do it in real life. Has there ever been a study that measured whether you, if you listen to Triple R, you get less dementia? I haven't I haven't found that study, but I'll keep looking, Steve. If, if I see it, and then so I'll And so what was it. your bad and sad news? That was your second oh, one. Oh, yeah, no, there was a little sad story. Um, this was about stand-up comedians. So... Um, actually, this research was done here in Australia at the Australian Catholic University and it sort of sprang out of the tragic death of Robin Williams. Mm. Um, and people sort of sat around talking about this and then as they thought about it, they realised that, you know, a lot of stand-up comedians seem to die early and so they decided to look into it. They found a couple of things which I think are... Um, quite notable. One of them is that yes, stand-up comedians die earlier on balance than comedy actors and than dramatic actors and there's a bit of a gradient. So stand-up comedians die the earliest. Uh, comedy actors die slightly later and dramatic actors die later than that. But no, but none of them really live for very long. So the median age of death for dramatic actors, and this is for the most popular dramatic actors, is about 70 years, which is young 70. to die. Too early to die, I think. Average age for men in the world currently in Western countries, 72. For women, that's 78, 79. That's mm, what and, creeping up. And in Australia, you know, 82, 84 for women these right. days. So. Yes, exactly. Yes. So yes. these the dramatic actors are dying a bit young. Mm. Note to my father, who I'm having coffee with later, he's an actor. <laughs> um, and uh, comedians? Yeah, well, that's right. They die at about sort of 67, 67. On, on average. Uh, and the funnier they are, 
Purely as they die. So you wouldn't be a you wouldn't be a bad comedian. <laughs> How do and they measure that? So okay, yeah, science. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Science Ronnie like Corbett, Ronnie <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Ronnie Corbett and Ronnie Barker. That's it, that's the perfect example, actually. And the other one they give is Morecambe and Wise. So the funny there's a if there's a duo, there's usually a funny guy and then a straight guy, and the funny guy dies earlier. So isn't right. that terrible? It's a very sad thing. So Dean Martin, they, Jerry Lewis. <laughs> they give us so much pleasure and yet they, they pay for it, you know. So uh, they had a look at some of the causes of death and one of the things that they noticed was in the stand-up comedians actually death by misadventure. So accidental death, overdoses, poisonings and then self-harm. So Right, so psych-related deaths. Yeah, yeah. I wrote an article actually two years ago in the conversation called Comedians and Mental Illness. Is there a link? And I'm des- I've just oh. looked it up. Because I'm trying to remember the conclusions, but if there is a link, yeah, well, they, um, yeah. you're prescient, Steve. You knew that that you knew that this was happening um, way before the research actually came out. So because I've got ESP, well, maybe that's why. Mm. That's handy to have as a psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know, I, I thought that was interesting. And then you sort of think about it. The lifestyle of comedians is pretty grim. You know, they're very regular hours. They don't get paid very much. They probably. Um, I think spend a lot more time alone than a lot of other people. So there are all these sorts of things which probably systematic disadvantaging them. But yeah. there might also be personality the... factors. You know, yes. people who become comedians often have a fairly dark view of the world. Mm. And, you know, so many comedians... One of the things I do remember, a lot of comedians talk about their difficult childhood. Often their comedy grows out of struggling. Not always, of course, but um, it's one of the factors. Hey, what about, mm. though, the drugs and alcohol? Any, you know, the biggest mm. factor for drug and alcohol um, risk factor is exposure. So if you work in any entertainment industry, if you work in a bar or if you do anywhere where you're exposed, you know, these comedians, of course, have to, you know, stay up late um, and they're surrounded by people drinking and often being offered free drugs. That's the nature of the industry. Is that one of the factors? Well, they didn't talk actually at all about alcohol and drugs, but I think it's a reasonable kind of thing to think about. Um, the, the person that I think about, of course, is Bill Hicks, the f- most fabulous comedian The you know... In the world, do you know who? Examples? No, I don't know. Examples of Bill Hicks. Oh, oh man! Yeah. Every, I hate it when I say, <laughs> "Remind me," because and everyone goes. It was like last week I was watching TV with someone and, um, you know, this singer called Adele came on and I said, who is she? And they all almost slapped me across the face. The most famous comedian in the world, you idiot. How can you possibly put your head up in public if you don't even know who Adele is? I apologise for not knowing who Bill Hicks is and Adele. Oh, man. Just remind okay, me. Okay, there's two people in this room who've never heard of Bill Hicks. Maybe I should Are defer to Kent, who's yeah, looking yeah, horrified. Yeah, that's right. No, there's two oh, men. 75% of doctors have not heard of Bill Hicks. <laughs> tell us, tell us, so Will no one should tell us? Give us some hints. Okay, so he's very old. It's not that, you know, so the Adele problem, I think, is probably because you don't listen to young people music. Right. But Bill Hicks actually died in, like, the 90s, I think. Yeah. But if you... And, and the only... Kent, the, by the way, is turning around <laughs> the computer screen to show us a picture. He's been on sitcoms and stuff. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So, all right, so just just a very broad... Life is only a dream and we're the imagination of ourselves. Oh, nice one, Bill. Mm. Anyway, go on, Perry. All right, so so he's amazing. Anyone who hasn't found Bill Hicks should go and have a look. Um, But probably if um, you're under 18, maybe not, because there's a lot of swear words that he uses. Um, But he was... Well, like, give us some examples. I can't, we're on air. (laughs) You can, it's triple R on Sunday morning, no one's listening. Um, so he was really an anarchic comic, I think. He really, um, I think, took apart the whole idea of being human, um, being male, being female. And uh, you can probably find his stuff on probably CDs. It's, I'm sure it's on the internet. I don't even know if there would be Why are we YouTube. hearing about him, by the way? He died, um, he, he died oh, really he died young. What from? 
I don't know. Um, oh, well, you're not much used to it. We don't <laughs> know who he person, is. You don't know why he died. He's the person that... <laughs> Between us, you know, hey, go, turn over to the ABC, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Should we move on to the next topic? Okay, We've well, only got a couple of minutes one. to talk about this. Um, I'm talking Pancreatic about... Pancreatic cancer he died from and it spread yeah. to his liver. Um, Keith um, pulled up Wikipedia, Pedia, mm-hmm. so he did die of cancer. Mm. Um, nice link. In 1993. Yeah, that is. Yes. Um, Thanks, Kent. The next thing we're going to talk about is pig humans. Mm. Pig so, humans. There's yeah, no segue. Right. Is there such a thing as a pig? You, you said this to, to, before, and you said a pig human's been invented, and I said the <laughs> Liberal Party invented them decades ago. Well, that's right, and um, I'm not even going to go there. But <laughs> okay, sorry to the Liberal Party. Politics invented them in general, not just one party. I shouldn't I, be picky. That's probably true. That's probably true. But in fact, the University of California has invented pig humans. Yeah, um, tell us why they would do that. Well, because. Primarily because there's such a shortage of uh, organs for people who are growing older or who have, for some reason, been unable to and continue to, you know, produce insulin is the reason why this particular version of pig human was invented. They call them chimeras. I know um, that. Chimera just means a combination between two things. It's not necessarily pig and human. Well, so they should be pig-human chimeras. Well, they are. Yes, exactly. Um, chimeras are usually another animal in a human like the sphinx. Is what oh, right, them. of yep. course. Uh, and they've developed these pig-human chimeras because of people who have genetic problems with producing insulin, so they don't have a functional pancreas. Um, and uh, what they've done is they've deleted the, uh, the gene that, that codes for um, the development of the pancreas in pigs. So in pigs, they've managed to create um, pigs that don't have a pancreas. And then they've injected human stem cells into the pig embryo, which then fills the deficit where the pancreas would have been. So actually the pancreas in the pig is a human pancreas, which then gets rid of all the problems which would occur when we try to transplant pig uh, tissue into humans. So we've used pig tissue in in valves for the heart for many years, but there are lots of problems with immunosuppression. So this particular problem is now eliminated. Wow. That was you whizzed through three fantastic topics in the space of about 10 minutes. Thank you. And got it done on time. We've got 30 seconds left to say our thank yous. Our biggest thank you, of course, is to Professor Jess Lindemann from Wehi for coming in this morning and telling us so much great stuff about breast cancer. Thanks so much. Thanks and much. enjoy. Do you, will you get to shake hands with Joe Biden or are you uh, not allowed we'll to go within 100 metres? <laughs> We'll be looking for you. I'm going to when Bill news. Clinton came out for the AIDS conference, I got um, given VIP tickets mm-hmm. and I didn't get to shake hands, but I got to sit in the front rows. Hey, thanks, Perry Pardon. Thanks, Capri. No um, You've been listening to Radiotherapy. Thanks, Ken, for doing everything. We're going to hand you over to the sensational scientists of Einstein and Gogo. They've got a packed show ready for you. So uh, it keeps listening. Stay tuned and uh, we'll see you again next week, everyone. Have a good week. Ciao. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.